0: As a child, I would go into those old cars and open the glove boxes and, you know, I'd open the glove box and some of the oldest ones would be full of dirt or something growing. And the ones that were newer contained things. So I conceive of the documentary poem as being if you opened a glove box and you found a reel, a film and pulled it out.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking today with Maya Jewel-Zeller about her poetry collection, Outtakes Glovebox, which won the 2022 New American Poetry Prize, selected by Eduardo Corral. He says of the collection, quote, Animals and plants are tended to, torn into, and observed with an enviable capacity to render them mythic, tangible. End quote. Outtake's Glovebox is a surrealist text, embodied and embedded in not only the mythic and the natural, but also in fairy tales and in family. One of the joys of reading this collection is realizing the many ways each thread, each image, each poem is so intricately wound to others and to the whole of this collection. Maya Jewel-Zeller is the author of the poetry collections Alchemy for Cells and Other Beasts, which is a collaboration with visual artist Carrie DeBacher, Rustfish, Yesterday the Bees, and Outtakes Glovebox. She is also co-editor, along with Sharma Shields, of the anthology Evergreen, Grim Tales and Fables from the Gloomy Northwest. Maya serves as Poetry Editor for Scablands Books and Associate Professor in the Professional and Creative Writing Program for Central Washington University. Maya, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to The Right Question. Thank you, Lauren. I'm really honored to be here as always. Oh, thank you so much. Your new collection is called Outtakes Glovebox. I want to talk about the outtakes right off the bat. Uh, two sections of poems at the beginning and at the end of your collections—they bookend the collection. Um, and the first series at the at the top follows a single poem called Documentary. I'm explaining your book to you, but no, I'm this. explaining to so listeners. <laughs> um, it, the the first series follows Documentary, um, and then they're organized under uh, the title outtakes from the
0: making so that's kind of the parent title and then they're like the little the yeah. little children or the offshoots
1: yeah let's focus on that first series i'm i'm wondering if you'll first read that first poem documentary and then we can talk about the structure that you've used to to
0: craft that series thank you so much lauren this is documentary on the screen my brain's bright jewelry arranged in a love scene my mother, my used little ovaries, this dark box, the roads I drove. I am making a city of petals, of rhododendrons, places I can arrive. I drove here on the roads of my brain, the gray streets, the creases of my mother. I drove here in this old car with its rusted axle and its peeling steering wheel and its glove box, full of dirt. Around me, chestnuts fall from their mothers, from their dark driving forces. In the field where I have arrived, I close the horse we opened together. I close its flayed stomach, hinged and winged like moths, its wet little eggs still bobbing in their soft ponds. My equine Anatomy, my horse mother, my four-footed beast. I ride her back home. Thank you. I was so
1: drawn to this series because you have this poem that opens this particular series. Mm -hmm. And then you follow with a series of poems in which the reader can see pieces of that documentary poem. And I don't know that I've ever seen that structure being used before. Maybe it exists, um, but it was the first time that I saw it certainly so successful and evident to my my eye. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how you conceived of that series and that structure specifically. Thank
0: you so much, Lauren. You're always such an incisive reader. And we were chatting before this about how (laughs) just you're, you're able to kind of thread the needle between close, close visceral attention to poems and intellectual attention to poems. And I always appreciate that about you. So thank you for seeing it so closely. I conceived of the documentary poem first because when I was writing this collection which actually is almost a decade old when I was writing this collection I was actually struggling with kind of the aftermath of postpartum depression and so I was less interested in direct narrative and more interested in fragmentation so I was doing what a lot of poets do when they need to respond to um you know I don't always like to use the word trauma but extreme events in their lives and I becoming a mother was is and was one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had. It's also been one of the most difficult. And it really fractured me in ways I did not anticipate. And so I think about uh, my students really identify with Kazim Ali. On writing Bright Felon, he says, I did not mean to innovate, but knew I could not speak. And when I was writing this book, I hadn't read you know Kazim's work. But the, the notion of fragmentation or listing or thinking about what's behind an image was pretty strongly influencing the ways I was writing and I started thinking about how as a filmmaker as a documentary filmmaker and I'm not a filmmaker and this is not my field so any filmmakers out there you can just you know call in and give me more advice but <laughs> I was thinking about how there's a final cut and you're you're often when you when we see that final cut what we see is a series of lyric fragments or lyric images that together form a narrative. And we're really filling in that in-between space. You know, it's the seizure between those things where the story is made. And when I was writing the poem documentary, I just was writing without thinking. I was allowing myself to enter that deep associative, you know, subconscious space that we write from that's informed by the past, informed by those things that are clashing or coming to a you know, <laughs> coming to a river delta, the silt coming down from all these different areas of the, you know, the parent river and the watersheds. And uh, so I just wrote that poem documentary. And then I sat with it and I thought, what is behind this? And I, I noticed that I had images that were really, they're deep images. You know, you think about the term deep image and how it has this, you know, Bly describes it as the animal that's moving, and the animal has has movement, and an image can move like an animal, and we're transported from one place to another just by that image, and we're accessing something deep and primal. And so that poem for me accessed these deep primal things, and I went back and I reread it, and I'm going to reference the poem really quickly. I, you know, I saw um, that that bright jewelry, and I thought, my used little ovaries, what is that about? And the roads I drove, what are those? A city of petals. Uh, the roads of my brain the creases of my mother the you know that old car with its rusted axle and its glove box full of dirt and i just i wanted to know more so i wrote down all those images and then i thought i'm going to do what i ask my students to do interrogate the image and so really the outtakes came from just interrogating the image and so it was it was like i wrote the final cut first and then worked backwards into the outtakes but of course the outtakes are what You know, they're what's left on the cutting room floor. Mm -hmm. And I kind of picked them up and then made them into poems. Throughout the rest
1: of the collection, too, these images recur. It is not just in the outtake poems that these images and these ideas exist. They exist and are threaded throughout the entire collection. So the entire collection, I suppose it's pretty fitting that it's outtakes glove box.
0: Yeah, thank you. And the glove box, I think the glove box might actually need a little explanation. My father was a tow truck driver for a period of my childhood and so he would pull in old cars that were left abandoned on the side of the road he'd get a call you know from the state patrol and he'd go pull them in and I don't know if people know in rural areas there is not always a junkyard <laughs> where those cars end up. So the person who drives the tow truck is the person who takes that car. And so our bushes around our property was full of junked cars, old rusted cars, um, kind of overgrown with salal and wild blackberry and elderberry. And so there's this this kind of meeting of you know, the human machine with the plant world and they're overlapping. And as a child, I would go into those old cars and open the glove boxes. And, you know, I'd open the glove box and some of the oldest ones would be full of dirt or something growing, moss, and they'd be covered in lichen and rust. And the ones that were newer contained things. So this book, I conceive of the documentary poem as being if you opened a glove box and you found a reel of film and pulled it out, that's what's happening. I love that so much. Let's talk
1: further about glove boxes, but mostly about cars. Um, It's really interesting to me that you grew up around cars in this way because cars and trucks, they actually feature pretty prominently in this book, Yeah, but so do other methods of transportation and Mm -hmm. travel, feet, fins. I'm wondering what drew you to writing about that movement, that travel, that...
0: um, that coming and going, that arrival yeah. and and going from. Thank you so much for that question. I love I love your question so much because I, I come into an interview and I think, oh, I'm going to say all these things. And you ask questions and I go in a completely different direction. <laughs> That's so, good. Um, asking about the cars, I, uh, I grew up kind of semi-transient. So travel was a big part of my childhood. Not travel like global travel, but travel take a back road to the next small town. And we were frequently moving. And sometimes I lived in a van or I lived in a garage. I lived in a little box or I lived in um, an old school bus <laughs> that was retrofitted. Wow. And, then, you know, we drove across half the half the country in it. But uh, cars just were they factored larger in my life than homes. So I I didn't really realize what was driving that image until you asked that question. But I think I'm just fascinated with methods of transport and transience and movement. And I think the horses, you know, we say this is a such-and-such horsepower car or such-and-such horsepower engine. And in those poems in particular, I was really interested in the ways we think about power um, and the way that power in a car is connected to an animal, Mm -hmm. the horsepower. And I'm connecting the animal's horsepower to, you know, the primal power of a woman's body in giving birth. And there's really a a deep, deep feminism, you know, the feminist mythic in this book in that the horses are tied very deeply to the woman's power and her reproductive system and her right to choose what she does and how she does it with her reproductive system. And that is a really central part of this book for me. And so all of those animal forces and movement forces, I think are in concert with that, that power of a woman's right to choose.
1: There are many human presences in this book, but there mm-hmm. are probably more natural non-human presences yeah. in this book. Um, and they're so finely balanced and intertwined. as a conflation, the way that you're using that language. How does the natural world, this non-human world specifically, because I think the human world is part of nature, but... How does it draw out or more finely highlight motherhood for you?
0: Yeah, that's such a great question. How does the animal world or the plant, the flora and fauna world, yeah, the non-human world, the non-human world, um, a lot of my friends call it the more than human world. Yeah, I like that too. Uh, how does that highlight motherhood? I think for me, and I can't speak to like a universal experience of motherhood. I think we all experience it differently. And I think anyone with a uterus goes through Different sets of recalibration when they become a mother and, um, or a parent, right? When someone mm-hmm. becomes a parent, I, I think for me, I grew up in such an uncivilized way. I grew up with really more access to, um, I was pretty feral. I was a pretty feral <laughs> child. Like other than those glove boxes spilling dirt and I, my first Billy Joel tape, you know, my first tape, my first cassette tape came out of a glove box in in my dad's tow truck or in my <laughs> dad's junkyard in the bushes, um. For me, I spent more time in the natural world than I did really in the civilized world. And so, you know, I didn't I didn't go to kindergarten because we were moving around and it came time to go to kindergarten. We were in uh, we were on the Oregon coast in a small town on the Oregon coast, and my parents sent me to school. And it was really a culture shock for me to be around other children and to experience patterns and order and socialization. And I was there for two weeks. And then we had to move, and they pulled me out. And then we didn't move because things changed. And so I just wandered around in the woods every day while my parents were working. And I was five, you know. I was just wandering around in the woods, getting to know the plants and the animals. And I felt, I mean, it sounds idyllic, like a like a you know, a, a princess, you know, a Disney princess wandering in the woods with the animals <laughs> and plants coming around her. But um, it was, I would say, there was a, a static violence in my childhood, and that I always felt the threat of you know, civilization encroaching on that world, but also that the natural world doesn't really care about you. So there was, there was kind of this like, unsettlement. And I think I felt safe in the natural world. And I also knew that in many ways in my life, I was not safe. So when I became a mother, I think there was something about the primality of giving birth. Um, and for me, I gave birth in a way that I had some complications. So I ended up with a C-section, which was really difficult because my my birth story is so, oh, you were born and it was beautiful and amazing and you don't need any assistance from the medical world. And I did need assistance from the medical world. And I am so, so grateful for the technology of the C-section. And I will praise it up and down. And I, I'm just so grateful that that existed for me because had it not, I had a midwife. And I pushed for eight hours. My baby was crowning for eight hours. And at the end of that, I had a C-section, um, you know, with no medication until the very end. And then I had a, you know, a, a labor that I didn't expect. And so the return to what I thought was going to be the mythic, idyllic feminine, right, of of giving birth. And I, I had this whole, you know, vision of that. And of course, I was also very educated about what complications might arise and how, you know the body doesn't always work exactly the way we think it's going to the the dissonance between the reality and what i thought was going to happen aligned with the primal and really beautiful process of having a baby and nursing and all of those things really kind of created this welling up in me of the past you know when we experience an extreme event we then access our our primal psychology and my primal psychology was full of these images of glove boxes and horses and so my post and the ocean um, so my post postpartum experience was writing, Writing these poems, and the earliest poems in the collection came when I was a a mother to very small children, and I was thinking about what is motherhood, what is lineage, um, who are my ancestors, and for me, my ancestors are maidenhair ferns and wood ferns and sorrel and the bracken, and that those are my ancestors. And that's where I went when I went primal. I went to the deep self, which is in the woods. Um, I'm wondering if you can read when they scanned her brain for love. Okay, this is When They Scanned Her Brain for Love. When they scanned her brain for love, it was the animal that came up dominant. The animal who tears across the lawn at dusk and leaps into the pond. The animal who climbs trees on the property perimeter, who sleeps in the leaves, dreaming of anemones and sea stars. Who walks barefoot toward the sea, I can hear it, wrestling with the sand, that old game, swallowing and choking on and spitting out glass. It smooths, but doesn't feel tender, toward stones. The sea came up dominant in me, not a field or sky. No wonder. These qualities lie just beneath the scalp. Self-esteem, veneration, benevolence. When they scanned my brain for love, they found only my longing to come and go and repeat. My currents pulled by a world beyond the one they know. I would pull out my hair for that world. You're listening to A
1: Conversation with poet Maya Jewell-Zeller. I'm Lauren Korn. This episode of The Right Question is supported by Chapter One Bookstore in Hamilton, Montana, a literary and community resource for the Bitterroot Valley, providing space to explore, discover, and share passions since 1974. More information can be found at chapteronebookstore.com. You mentioned earlier, Maya, that your childhood was not confined or guided or structured by pattern and organization. And while you were saying that, I was like, well, no wonder you're a poet. You have creative <laughs> license within yeah. structure and pattern and and that organization. Um, I'm going to kind of Pull back and and get back into the collection a little bit. You write in a poem titled Bowl of Clocks and Stones of a friend who you call E throughout the collection, Mm -hmm. who, quote, maintains you can say anything you want in a poem. (laughs) I'm wondering if you believe that, Maya, that you can say anything
0: you want in a poem. I do. Thank you so much, Lauren. I think that poetry and poetics give us a huge sense of permission. You know, poetry as a genre begins with um, Enheduanna, the high priestess of Sumeria, who was actually the first known author. You're nodding. You know all these things. Um, You know her father was a king, and she uh, was—I think she was the um, apprentice to or guardian of the moon goddess. And so I'm thinking of thinking about how, as the first named author, and she wrote in her tablets, "I am Enheduanna." She wrote her name. I am. I am. She. And she was writing about childbirth and movements and et cetera, et cetera. And she really did say whatever she wanted in a poem. I mean, she was doing these these devotions, these devotions to um, in these these thirty nine different temples, and she would write these tablets. And um, but she was she was saying anything she wanted in a poem. And she's she's my ancestor, you know. She's all of our ancestor. And the fact that she was a woman poet and a high priestess and a woman in a position of power, I think is really beautiful. And I think a lot about. Uh, you know, my foundational texts were ferns and rivers and watersheds. And when I got to know literature, my foundational texts have grown to be people like, say, Again and, and Hedwana and Sappho. And, uh, you know, we're here in Missoula. So I'm going to say there are some amazing Missoula writers that are also foundational for me. Deborah Magpie-Earlean's book, Red was something I read when I was 20, and I just, I've been blown away by her. Henrietta Goodman and Kate Chip Kuypers. Um, so I'm thinking about the ways that the poets, novelists, people working with language now really do give that great sense of permission. You can say anything you want in a poem. I do believe that. And I I think that there's this this beautiful, you know, we all know in poetics that we construct a speaker, um, but we also know that all of those speakers Our versions of ourselves. You know, we all know the late essayist Joan Didion, we need to keep on nodding terms with our past selves. And that is a misquote, misparaphrase of her. But (laughs) she essentially said, we need to know all our past selves and keep on nodding terms. And those past selves become personas. And we can step into those shadows that we've kind of slipped off, and we can step back into them and speak from them. And they can all speak to each other. And a poem gives us this wonderful space. You know, poetry is the genre of, I think, Deep speaking and deep knowing, and it's where we go into, you know, the the instar of ourselves, right? Mm. You know that cocoon stage. <laughs> I'm going to get so dorky here. You know, I always get. Dorky. I love it. You Keep know how going. a how a you know a butterfly when it's it's changing from the you know larvae to the butterfly, it, it goes into the the pupa and it it like melts into a goo,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that goo is called instar. And I think about how a po- a poem is the formalization of the instar of the self it's something that's between metamorphosis <laughs> and of course it's revised but yes friend e says you can say anything you want in a poem and i a hundred percent agree with her
1: yeah and i loved that line because i thought it was so attractive and, and as i was reading um I was making notes, you know, preparing for this interview, and I made a note on a separate poem in the book, the poem, Ode to All the Women Who Walk into the Lake and Some of the Women Who Take Their Children with Them. Such an evocative title, one. Thank um, you. But the note I made, Maya, was, is the poem a sacred space? And this was separate oh. from the question, separate from um, certainly this conversation we're having now. Um but I felt like there's a thing of the poem and I like I like calling it the instar. I like, you know, that there's a sacred space. There's you can say anything in a poem. I like that thing that we're talking about here. You have opened your book. Do you want to read whatever poem you've turned to, whether it's Ode to All the Women or?
0: Sure. I mean, I just went there because you were talking about it. And I, yeah. I, you know, I have to kind of reference. It's funny. I think people often think authors have all their own works memorized. <laughs> and we're in seven seventy five different projects since this book. So this book is, you know years old, but um, I do believe the poem is the sacred space. And this poem you just referenced, Ode to All the Women Who Walk Into the Lake and Some of the Women Who Take Their Children With Them, references so many powerful women characters, and it it, um, alludes to them by paraphrasing their lines. Yeah, speaking of lineage. Yes. So this is Ode to All the Women Who Walk Into the Lake and Some of the Women Who Take Their Children With Them. Because they cannot stop for death or the long-sweeping parabola of the horizon... They weight their pockets with agates, those dull burdens of light and ink, and weighed in. Yesterday, the six-year-old said she missed being in the womb, where no one bothered her. And the three-year-old made a portrait of his mother with only two colors, and the brushstrokes looked like bird's wings, and the brushstrokes looked like fins. So why not climb out of her velvet dress, I mean cotton blouse, I mean flannel pajama pants, and jump like Mary Poppins into the dream of a different landscape? What if she really does want to hold a parasol or even kill foxes? Is it so easy to hate the women who abandon their offspring for pleasure or solace or the long-sweeping parabola of the horizon, to which they return like arrows to their bows, or like horses to the first hour after birth, their skin still glistening with the chance of death before walking, when their legs were just four long appendages stretching and wondering and being licked and prodded by their own mother's hopeful tongues. Thank you. I'm
1: reminded specifically because of the the kind of overt notion in this poem of abandonment um, mm-hmm. about the idea of fleeing something or escape. Yeah. How does how does this collection consider those ideas, especially we talked about movement and travel and arrival and going earlier? How How does how does this collection consider those ideas maybe
0: together, too? Um, I think that this book um, – so there's a section actually that follows that. So the book's broken down into several sections. There's the documentary with outtake section. And then there's the the section that that poem is in, the, the the notion of abandonment or running away or really needing to escape because it's not the children she needs to escape. It's the pressures that a patriarchal heteronormative marriage forces her into. In a culture where she's not allowed to have any kind of maternal leave. And she's also not, you know, if she if she puts her children in daycare, she's doing it wrong. If she does this, she's doing it wrong. If she does this, she's doing it wrong. If she has a career and um, the abandonment or the running away um, in this book in the next section takes the form of extreme imagination. So um, lyric imagining is a really big part of this book. And the next section is about a woman who believes she used to be a mermaid. Will you read outtake storyboard? Speaking of uh, fairy tale, you you've been speaking to myth. Let's let's read that one. Outtake storyboard. What I mean to say is, being a mother made me feel like a myth. What I mean is, I'm a fish. What I mean to say is, don't open me, as in. I've always been folded like a letter into its envelope, smudged pencil, a scent of old wood, language in its dark furnace, something to say to someone, flint ready, char cloth, waiting to burn.
1: Being a mother made me feel like a myth. Let's talk about that line a little more, because I feel like we've been talking about yeah. it sort of indirectly through the other poems in in this collection. Let's talk what, what does that line mean to you? Where where did that line come from?
0: Yeah. So actually I wrote this poem, Outtake Storyboard, this the first series in the book. So there's the poem documentary and then all those outtakes that I pulled out. I wrote all those outtakes, and then when I finished writing the series of outtakes, and there were more of them, there were like eight outtakes. But that outtake storyboard was the ninth. Was the ninth one I wrote, I think. Um, and so it actually belongs with that first set, but it wasn't one of the images exactly. And so it was like I was doing that thing you do when you're like, well, let me try it this way. And then you, and then you, <laughs> I give this exercise to my beginning poets. I have them play with images. I'm, I'm a teacher, so I have them play with images and interrogate the image. And then I say, after about ten attempts, I say, but what do you mean? What is it you really mean? <laughs> Tell me in one sentence what it is you really mean. And so that that sentence, you know, what I mean to say is. And I thought, I just want to say it in one, almost a thesis statement, which I rail against. I used to teach composition and I was always, do not put your thesis statement. That, that was poet, poet Maya Jewell-Zeller, author of Outtakes Glovebox,
1: out now from New American Press. Look for more information about Maya at mtpr.org. Where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Jake Birch and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris Moyles engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridus. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.